John chapter 16, and we'll read verses 16 through 24, and, and we'll focus on the message. These are the words of Jesus. He's got just a short time left with his disciples, and, and we'll, we'll focus on his words. But also as we read this, I want you to notice the disciples have kind of taken another step here as, as we go on. There were, they had questioned Jesus early on in this meal and, and interrupted him, it seemed, at times. Uh, then they went completely silent. Uh, now they're starting to ask each other what's going on. And, and uh, so as we read that, you will note that Jesus has just been talking about the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit uh, who will be with them. And, and now his teaching will continue. And so uh, we'll continue with the words of Jesus here. Uh, John chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they were or that they wanted to ask him so he said to them is this what you are asking yourselves what i meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me truly truly i say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for these words of comfort that Jesus speaks to us even in this time, as his disciples, he's telling them, will have sorrow and will weep. We ask that you will speak to our hearts, that your truth will be felt in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, the story is told of a, a British economist. In fact, it was one of the leading uh, British economists and. And uh, he was asked in December, as we get ready for uh, Christmas, and we've already seen the advertisements and, and all of that. Well, he was asked one December uh, about the economic forecast. Their economy needed a boost at the time. And, and so they had asked him, will Christmas do this? People spending money, uh, is it going to affect the economy? And, and actually, he gave uh, a very uh, unknowingly uh, brilliant answer. Um, theologically, his answer was this, the significance of Christmas will not become clear 
until Easter. Until, until Easter, if this was enough to boost the economy. But theologically, a lot of doubt. Until you get to Easter, then you realize what it's all about. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples right here. The significance of everything I'm saying, it's going to, you'll feel the impact in a little bit. A little while, he says, and you will see me no longer. And then a little while, and you will see me. And of course, he's talking here about his death and then his resurrection. And his death or his arrest is just minutes away, maybe. We might be less than an hour, maybe a little bit more. The death is coming the very next day, his resurrection just a few days away. And so he's telling them this, and his disciples, as I mentioned earlier, they turn to one another and they're asking, you know, what, what is he saying here? He's going to the Father. He mentioned that back. If you look at verse 10, he had mentioned uh, he's going to the Father and they won't see him. And, and they're trying to put this together. And, and uh, the problem for the disciples is they have no category for this kind of Messiah. You know, when they read the Old Testament, they know of the Messiah and his, his kingdom, but there's not this category in their mind for a, a Messiah, a Christ, who's going to die and then is going to rise again and then is going to go away in favor of this Holy Spirit that Jesus has been talking about, the, the, the helper, as he mentioned. They, they just don't have that in their head yet, and they're trying to figure it out. And it does remind me a little bit of school. Remember when you would sit in school and the teacher would be explaining something that you, you may not really understand? And at first you might ask a couple of questions like the disciples did. Can you clear this up? And, and what, was that? what was that? Go through that one again. And then there comes a point maybe where you're just silent. You're, I don't get it. And, and you listen really hard and you're trying to figure it out. And I still don't get it. And, and you're concentrating really hard. And then eventually, you turn to your neighbor and you said, is it just me or what's going on here? Do you understand what's going on? And that's where the disciples are now. They're looking at each other. Does this make sense to you? Do you get this yet? Or is it just me? And so they have these questions. And Jesus can clearly see that they're confused. And he can clearly see they're whispering to each other. What's this all about? Do you get this? I don't really get this. And so the ever-observant teacher that Jesus is, he, he sees their confusion. He, he can see the whispering, probably hear it even. He knows they have this question, what are you talking about? Can you clear this up for us? But as he gives this answer, I, I want us to note something. Note the, the poise that Jesus has as he answers this, this question or, or tries to explain it even better. His, his self-control, even, in light of what's going to happen. Because he knows what's going to happen. It's, it's this, this weeping and, and this uh, lament. He knows what that is. That's when he's on a cross. And he knows how quickly it's going to happen. His betrayer is gone. So he, he knows what's coming. He knows that it's, it's going to be quick. In fact, uh, just for fun, uh, on Friday, I think it was, I, I thought, I wonder how long 
there is left as, as John records it from, from which, where we are right now until they go to the garden. And so I read everything out loud. Just uh, I started at verse 16 and I, I started reading out loud. I thought, I'll just, I just want to see how long it takes me to finish up what Jesus is saying here. And I read through chapter 16 and, and then uh, all of chapter 17, which is a prayer that Jesus prays. And then they go uh, to the garden after that. It took me six, just over six and a half minutes. So in six and a half minutes, you can guess, they're leaving for Jesus to be arrested. I mean, it's coming fast, but as expected, Jesus is handling this moment remarkably well. Knowing what the next few minutes is going to bring, knowing what the next few hours are going to bring. And we're boy that was set before him endured the cross. He knows there's joy up ahead. In fact, our passage ends with him talking about joy. He knows it's up there, but he's he also knows what's coming before we get to the joy. And he's got this rock-solid faith. And he's trying to give that. He's trying to communicate that. And he tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, in verse 20, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And weep and lament, those are hard words when you think about them. He's not saying, well, you're going to be slightly inconvenienced and a little off-put. No, this is weeping and lamenting because what you will witness is going to be horrible. They're strong words. And not only that, but this very event that is making you weep and lament is going to be the event that the whole rest of the world is going to rejoice in. The, the Roman soldiers, when you read about the, the crucifixion, the Gentiles, if you will, the, the Roman soldiers, they took great liberties uh, abusing Jesus, beating him up, mocking him any way they could, spitting on him, and they were cheered on by all the Jewish people. They were rejoicing in this event taking place, and he said, at that time you will be weeping and lamenting. You will be sorrowful, he continues, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And we do see that later on in, in uh, chapter 20, verse 20. Uh, Jesus is uh, showing himself to the disciples. He shows them his hands and his side. And, and it's said that the, the disciples were, uh, according to the New American Standard and the NET Bible, they rejoiced. I almost like how the NIV says it better. They were overjoyed when they saw Jesus. It'll get to that. They'll get there. But there's going to be some weeping and lamenting along the way. And then he, Jesus uses this illustration of the woman giving birth. And, and we see this combination of, of intense suffering and then the, the relieved joy at childbirth. And, and when he talks about this, what we should note is that this is a, a common illustration of travail, if you will, for God's people uh, in the Old Testament. And so the disciples, they have a reference point for this. They're like, oh, wait, Isaiah talked about this in a few places. And Jeremiah 
and Micah, and those are some of the famous ones, especially uh, Isaiah 26 in particular, a lot of the same imagery, some of the same words. In Isaiah 66, uh, there's that same imagery, and, and also the phrase, you shall see. And so there's lots of markers taking them back to the Old Testament as, as they're listening to Jesus here. And, and so all of this is to say is that the disciples are picking up on this language from the Old Testament concerning the Messiah and that they're finding perhaps more comfort in these words than we really understand in our culture. It, to us, it sounds like Jesus just all of a sudden came up with this great illustration, but, but for them, it rooted them back in the Old Testament scripture and they found some comfort in there. And we'll, we'll continue talking about the Old Testament a little bit when, when we talk about the Father uh, next time. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But, but the disciples here are, are recognizing uh, this metaphor and, and that it was used in the Old Testament and, and how it was used in the Old Testament. And now how Jesus is using it concerning them. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, Jesus's illustration is intended to teach a deeper truth, a principle that governs all discipleship. The joy that a child has been born does not merely follow the pain of labor, it is through the pain of labor that the joy of birth comes. True, the relationship between the disciples' pain and their coming joy will be chronological, but it will also be causal. This is the consistent New Testament teaching about the relationship between tribulation and joy, suffering and glory. True, there is suffering now, and there will be glory then, but more than that, the glory is produced out of the raw materials of the suffering, just as out of a woman's labor pains come the joy of a new life. For the Christian, there is purpose, and therefore meaning, even in the darkness. Then there will be joy, but it's through, through this pain that the joy is going to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, for this light momentary affliction, and in context, that's a huge understatement there. He's kind of talking tongue-in-cheek a little bit. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's what the disciples are, are picking up on as, as he makes this connection from the Old Testament prophecy to what Jesus is saying. And it is interesting, I, I think, that Paul actually uses this uh, imagery in Galatians. Uh, Paul is, is warning these churches in, in Galatia, which is an area, and, and uh, they're being uh, misled into uh, a faith that uh, revolved around their works and, and not faith. And, and Paul is, is saying, no, if faith is the ground of your salvation. It's Christ who died for your sins, and, and faith in him, that's what saves you. And, and they're, they're being seduced into this uh, works righteousness thing. And Paul, in the midst of this, in Galatians chapter 4, uh, writes, My little children, 
for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Uh, he uses this uh, metaphor as well. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of pain here, guys, but I'm, we're going to bring new life out of this. I'm going to form you in Christ. Uh, he uses this metaphor as well. Uh, Jesus uh, here assuring his disciples there's going to be joy. And, and part of that joy is something that the disciples had not even considered yet. Something that was not on their radar at all. They had asked things from Jesus. They certainly had. They certainly asked questions of Jesus. But they hadn't really asked the Father for things yet. You know, priests could do that. But not guys like the disciples. But now, Jesus introduces this new privilege. Joy, even, with this new uh, way of relating to God. Uh, they, they will see Jesus again. He's told them that. But then he's going to go away again. And when he goes away, they will pray in a way they have never prayed before. In that day, Jesus said in verse 23, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever asks the Father in my name, now, when we look at Scripture, none of the prayers in, in Scripture actually have that phrase, in Jesus' name, at the end of them. We always put that in. We always pray, in the name of Jesus. And, and sometimes we don't always think, well, what does that really mean? We kind of tack it on sometimes. And, and to come to the name of someone uh, means that uh, that another person has authorized us to come under his authority. That, that was the meaning for the disciples then, and, and that's what Jesus wants us to know as well. To come in the name of Jesus means that we have the authority of, of Jesus. We, we come on his authority, not our own. And the disciples, they would actually command things in the name of Jesus, remarkable things. In Acts chapter 3, there was uh, someone who couldn't walk, and, and Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, and, and he does. Another one is Acts chapter 16. Uh, there was uh, uh, Paul. There was this, this girl who had a, a, a unclean spirit, it says, and more than anything, she was really annoying Paul and, and the people he was with. And, and so he said, in the name of, of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And, and it did. And, and they would command things in the name of, of Jesus. It's, it's his authority. And now uh, he's telling his disciples right here, he said, you will ask of the Father in my name. Uh, Wayne Gruden uh, writes this. The name of a person in the ancient world represented the person himself, and therefore all of his character. This means that praying in Jesus' name 
is not only praying in his authority, but also praying in a way that is consistent with his character. And Gruden warns against a couple of things. Uh, he warns against uh, this idea of praying in the name of Jesus as some kind of magic formula. And he says quite often this happens with especially younger Christians. I'll pray for whatever I want, but if I add the name in the name of Jesus, then it's some kind of magic and it'll all work out. He warns against that because it's also knowing Jesus' character. He also warns against fretting if we happen to forget. You know, you, you pray and you're so intent on praying and then uh, at the end you think, oh, I, did I mention in the name of Jesus and does that prayer even count anymore? And, and uh, in fact, Grudem writes this, so long as our hearts continually realize that it is our Savior who enables us to pray to the Father at all, uh, he says, genuine prayer is a conversation with a person whom we know well and who knows us. And that's the significance of his prior teaching on the Holy Spirit. Because he had just told the disciples, you know. And so for us, we, we must know Christ's words so that we know his character. So that we come to the Father consistent with Dr. Douglas Kelly, in his great book about prayer, writes this. When a believer faithfully uses the name of Jesus in prayer, the Father can let that prayer walk right through the throne room of heaven and up to his very heart, for he hears the voice of his beloved Son in its tone. When I come in Jesus' name, it is as though Jesus takes my hand and we walk up to the Father's throne together. The Father can accept me because I am related to him through the Son. And the basis disciples are going to see this. They're going to weep and they're going to lament. Just like them, some of what happens in this world doesn't make a lot of sense. A lot of darkness, it seems. But they saw Jesus, and all of a sudden, what Jesus was saying made sense. As we walk through with our pain and weeping and the darkness, someday we'll see Jesus. And all this will make a lot more sense. And in the meantime, we have this joy. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus died on that cross. That he's with us as we pray to you, Father. As we walk through this world that sometimes doesn't make sense. Where we do weep at times. Where there is lamenting. As we walk through the darkness. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that we can bring all of our concerns to you. We thank you for hearing our prayer, working through our prayer. We thank you for the joy that we have in knowing Christ and the joy that we know will come when we see his face. And we do pray this.
all in the powerful, wonderful, beautiful name of our Savior.